open your copy of God's Word this morning to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at the first four verses. I came across an interesting, uh, and I'm going to get to them in just a minute. I came across an interesting prayer this week, and I don't typically read prayers of other people. Uh, I know a lot of people do that for devotions and uh, gain a lot from that because you're you're growing from the godly wisdom and leaders before you, and I get that. I just don't typically do that. But I came across this particular prayer, and when I read it, I thought, I like that. You know, that, that's real. That's right where I am, okay? The prayer went something like this. I'm not going to quote it, uh, but it went like this. Lord, it's been a great day so far, and I am really thankful for all you're doing in my life so far this morning, I have not cussed anybody out. I have not lost my temper. I have not lusted after anyone or anything. And quite frankly, Lord, I'm pretty glad about all of those things. But you and I both know, in a few minutes, I got to get out of bed and get going. And then I'm going to need a lot of help. Can I get a witness? That, that's pretty accurate for most of us. That we can live Christianly as long as we're in bed. As long as we're asleep, perhaps, in bed. We can do the Christian life. But as soon as we get out of bed, it gets difficult. And we need a lot of help. Philippians 1 verse 27 says we are supposed to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. We looked at that last week. And you might be thinking, okay, I'm supposed to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. I need a lot of help with that. And God says, got you covered. Okay? Just keep coming with me. Chapter 2. And he gets into chapter 2. And he begins to tell us how to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ, how to live Christianly as Christians. Matter of fact, those of you who love history would consider this day Reformation Sunday. Historically speaking, this is Reformation Sunday. And we're going to have a Reformation feast this evening. Wouldn't it be reformational? If Christians lived Christianly. Like, pow. All of our lives we have been living with the criticism that as Christians you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Wouldn't it be revolutionary? Wouldn't it be reformational? If Christians were not known as hypocrites, but were known as living Christianly, the way God wants us to live. Look at Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now let me give you those four verses again with my outline. When I read scripture, I try to you know, put it into my own words so I can uh, digest it, so I can um, live it. So God is saying here, verse 27 of chapter 1, I want you to walk worthy. And then in chapter 2, he says, now, I know you need motivation. I know you need a little incentive. Have you ever been encouraged? Verse 1 of chapter 2. Ever been encouraged in Christ? And you should be shaking your head. Yeah, I have. Ever had any comfort from God's love? And you're shaking your head. Mm, yeah, I have. Have you ever experienced the participation in the Spirit where the Spirit just showed up and He was there with you through something and you're shaking your head again? Yeah, had that. Have you ever at times felt God just being affectionate and sympathetic with you? And again, you say, mm-hmm. And he says, well, then make me happy. God is clearly in your life doing things every day. Why don't you get on board with that and live the Christian life? And then he gives us, we say, well, God, how? He gives us three ways. I want you to live, those are the incentives, I want you to live harmoniously in harmony with one another. I want you to live humbly and I want you to live helpful to one another. That's the Christian life. Now let's break that down little by little and think about it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the incentives. Um, I did in my, in my study, in my notes, I'm thinking as I look at this, you know, so is there any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, any affection? I'm thinking, you didn't give me much there, God. You didn't define those terms for me. And so I went out on my own to try to define them. And I did word studies on these words. And I am prepared to give you the answers to all of those. And I, the more I got thinking about it, it's like God didn't give me the answers to those word studies in the text because that's not the main point. The first verse is, is, is like you're just supposed to be nodding your head. Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. I don't need a lot of explanation. And the application comes in verse 2, 3, and 4, okay? So I want to get there. And if I spend a lot of time on word studies in verse 1, I use up my time. And, and I just, I, the older I get, the, the more I talk, you know? And it just, we don't get where we need to go. So let's, let's not spend a lot of time on that. Um, let's just see, we need incentives. We need motivation. Verse 1, the motivations are 
encouragement, comfort, participation, and affection. Those are the incentives. Those are the motivations. If we have them, we move forward in Christian life. And we have them. So we should move forward. It's, it's kind of, I mean, you get it. If, if a husband comes home from work, he has a wife that's already there at home. And she opens the door as he comes home and says, Honey, wow, so good to see you. I'm so glad you're back. Let me give you a hug. Let me kiss you. I have missed you all day. How many do not see that as an incentive for that husband to come home tomorrow? Right? Anybody that is welcomed with hugs and kisses, I want to show up next tomorrow and see if that happens again. It's an incentive. The same way if the husband comes home and the wife's been busy and all sorts of things have been going on, and he says, honey, before you talk to me about my day, could we just sit down? Could you, could you tell me how your day's been going? Let me just listen to you. Let me just see what's been going on in your life. And that wife says, whoa, I can't wait till he comes home tomorrow. It's an incentive for relationship. Now, it can go the other way, right? The husband comes home. Where have you been? I've been waiting for you. You're five minutes late. Do you not know? Yada, yada, yada. And the husband thinks, I'm tired of this. No incentive. Or the wife could receive, what have you been doing all day? That's all you've done? Really? Really? That's it? No incentive. No incentive. There's no growth. There's no Christian living. You get the difference, right? And God is saying, I want you to stop and think. How do you change all of that? How do you kill that fighting, you start with realizing God's not fighting you. God's encouraging you. Is there any encouragement? Has God been loving you? Has God been participating with you? Has God been affectionate and sympathetic? And you're shaking your head, yes, 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 yes. Then live. Live rightly. Live Christianly. So I, I want you to get that dynamic. The more I studied it, the more I was removed from the feeling of it. And so I kept begging God, Lord, don't... Don't let me get so technical here with the words and definitions that our people miss the affection and the love that motivates the living. I want you to get that. I hope you'll see it in this text. Let's work through the incentives just real quick. Is there any encouragement in Christ? The word here, encouragement, 
is in some translations translated as comfort. The next word is comfort. So I'm struggling. Do I use comfort? Do I use encouragement? I don't know. But you get the point. The word, I'm trying to find the word encouragement. How is it different? In 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, we have the exact same Greek word used like seven times. So if there's any place to go to define this word, this is it. Um, so let's go to first, uh, first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. And you get the same word. So what does this word encouragement mean? 2 Corinthians 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all, there's the word, God of all encouragement is the way they've translated it in Philippians. God of all comfort who encourages or comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to encourage and comfort those who are in any affliction with the encouragement or comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we shared abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort, your encouragement and salvation. And if we are encouraged or comforted, it is for your encouragement which you experience when you patiently endured the same sufferings that we suffered. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. You will also share in our comfort, our encouragement. So the words are used interchangeably there, and you just see God the Father's comfort, God the Son's comfort, God the Holy Spirit's comfort. God is all in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to encourage us in our afflictions and through our afflictions to give us purpose and significance that we are able to encourage others in their sufferings and their afflictions. God says, you ever been through, through something like that where you, you are suffering and God shows up, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just to encourage you? And then you realize... A little bit later down the road that you're talking to somebody else going through the same struggles you've been going through and you're able to encourage them and you say, wow, that was for this and my life has purpose and it has significance. And God says, that's, that's the point. I'm there for you. I encourage you. I give you strength and life. Uh, look at John 14. It's... Um, 14 through 16, it's interesting, some of you, I know I've got other pastors in the room that have studied Greek, it's interesting that the word for comfort is paraklesis, and the word for Holy Spirit is parakletos. The spirit of comfort gives comfort. The, the, the uh, close associations, look at John 14, um, 
14 through 16. Um, John 14, I think that's right. Um, let me skip to uh, verse 16. Uh, it says, and then verse 26, and, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter, another, another Greek parakletos, to be with you forever. Verse 26, um, but the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It's interesting that Christ is saying to his disciples as he's about to leave them, I want you to know that I'm leaving. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. But guess what? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send you a 24-7 encourager, comforter, spirit, my spirit. Wow. I'm not only going to not leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you without encouragement and comfort and strength. And I don't know about you, but I get that every day. God said, come on, David, you can do it. Get out of bed. Please move forward. I am with you. And you can do this one more time. And the joy of always having someone push me from behind gently and lovingly encouraging, strengthening, comforting, that's Christ. Is, Philippians 2, is there any encouragement in Christ? Absolutely, yes, there is. Never leaves me never forsakes me, never neglects to direct me rightly and to nudge me that direction. Second, is there um, any comfort from love? Trying to distinguish one from two, comfort from comfort. The word comfort here is also translated by some translators, consolation. I think trying to do that. Um, it just kind of takes, I think, comfort to the next level, making it not just comfort, but eternal comfort. Always comfort, real comfort. Um, we get that. Christ is with us. He's loving us. He's present with us. He never forsakes us. Is there any comfort from love? Yeah. I don't know how much comfort I have received without love. It's Comfort from love that really gets me. Comfort. And that's the kind of comfort God provides. Let's just move. Number three, participation in the Spirit. Is there any participation in the Spirit? The word participation, you don't even have to know Greek. You've heard this term. The word here, here, participation, is koinonia. It's the Greek word for fellowship. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? We're, Acts 2, uh, 42, we're to be devoted to fellowship. Is there any 
fellowship, any participation. The fellowship is an active engagement in the Spirit. Well, yeah, I don't know about you, but every day, everything I do, it is a participation in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with me when I take that math test. The Holy Spirit is with me when I take that driving test. The Holy Spirit is with me when I'm working on something I don't understand. The Holy Spirit is with me when I'm engaged in a conversation. The Holy Spirit is with me, yes, when I'm worshiping. The Holy Spirit's with me when I'm praying. The Holy Spirit never leaves me. And I'm in constant engagement with the Holy Spirit. There is a participation in the Spirit. I have 24-7. Is that not cool? Who else has that? Other believers. But non-believers don't. They're lonely. They're without hope in this world because they're without God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have what we have. Do you have a participation in the Spirit? And you say, yes. And what a joy. What a glory. To have Christ and His Spirit with me constantly. And then number four, do you have affection and sympathy? You who deserve wrath, you who deserve to go to hell, have you been embraced and redeemed and purchased with blood? And you say, wow, yes, I've had that kind of love, and I experience that kind of love now. Does that not change you? Does that not make you different? Absolutely it does. It makes me want to love Jesus. It makes me want to live for Jesus, radically so. And that's where he takes us. The focus is not on those incentives and motivations. It's just a quick reminder of those motivations, those incentives to let us know we are wonderfully blessed and should be living a blessed life. We should be living for Christ because he has so wonderfully lived for us. So let's move forward to... It say, well, Lord, help me. How do I live radically different in light of how you've radically loved me, cared for me, encouraged me, embraced me, uh, strengthened me, participated with me? How do I live for you? And he gives us three things. I'm going to walk through them again. Verse 2. Complete my joy. Paul said, just make me happy and do this, okay? Make me happy by, number one, Harmonious, being of the same mind, you get it, that's harmony. Having the same love, that's harmony. Being of full accord, that's harmony. And of one mind, that's harmony. I want you to live harmoniously. 
same mind, same love, same accord, same mind. Verse 3, I want you to live selfishly or humbly. Uh, do nothing with selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Harmoniously, humbly, verse 4, let each of you look not out to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Helpfully. Look to help others. Those are the three points. That's Christian living. Let's think about it together. First of all, let us live harmoniously. Uh, whatever we do, it should be done same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. How do you do that? You agree on doctrine. You agree on truth. Look at John 17, verses 17 through 21. Jesus praying his church would have unity, and the unity has a foundation, and the foundation is doctrine. John 17, verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. That's doctrine. I want you to get pure, right, in the truth. Your, world, your word is truth, God's word. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified or consecrated in truth. That's doctrine. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he was asking for the church that was with him. He says, I'm not only asking for this church, I'm asking for that church, the future church, you and me, that we would all be collectively joined together in truth. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, they also may be in us, so that we, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world's going to see us as believers because we're harmonious. We're one. We're sanctified in the same stuff. We all hold this to be our standard. It's the word of God. We are consecrated, meaning we are set apart for the truth. For the word of God. Jesus says, I am sanctified. I'm consecrated to live. I am the truth. I live the truth. I want my church to live the truth. To be set apart for the truth. That this is the standard. We don't sit around and say, well, I don't know. What, what do you think? What do I think? Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. He said, no, that's garbage. I, we're set apart by this truth. The word of God. Your word, he says, is truth. Not somebody else's word. God's word is truth. And we're sanctified by it. We're set apart by it. We're unified. That that's our standard. I might misunderstand it. You might misunderstand it. And we need to work together to embrace it. But we are convinced and convicted that this is it. What does God say that settles it? 
I might not believe it right. You might not believe it right. Somebody else might not believe it right. But whatever God says settles it. And so we keep coming back to what does God say? And then that gives us a unity or harmony, puts us on the same page, going the same direction, running fast, and with all the strength God supplies for His glory and His honor. He says, live, if, if you have anything from Christ, live on His truth, according to His word. Live harmoniously. Um, have spiritual unity. Um, what is a non-Christian here? Non-Christian hears oh, so many different voices from the from the church. Well, that part of the church is running hard that way. I mean, even today, that part of the church seems to be running towards Palestine, and that part of the church seems to be running towards Israel. And that part of the church seems to be running towards Republicans. And that part of the church seems to be running towards the Democrats. And that part of the church seems to be Episcopalian. And that part of the church seems to be Presbyterian. And that part of the church seems to be Baptist. And that part of the church seems to be Pentecostal. And what does the world hear? The world hears so many distorted voices. And God says, I want you to be one. I want the world to see that you all embrace truth, and my word is truth. And if they would see that, they would believe that you're mine and I'm yours. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself into the second category. But why are we so distorted? Because we want what we want. We're not humble. We don't consider the other part of the body of Christ more important than ourselves. We don't consider the Baptists more important than the Presbyterians. We don't consider the Pentecostals more important than the Independents. We don't consider the Republicans or Democrats more important than the other. We just don't go there. We don't. And we say, well, well, we don't go there because they're wrong and I'm right. That second part. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead. But just, just stop and think about what it would mean to be harmonious. It doesn't mean you have to give up your exegesis and all your study in the Word of God to somebody who is shallow and hasn't studied, and hasn't read. Because there's plenty of people who get it wrong just because they haven't read the whole Bible. And they don't have the interpretive skills to get it right yet. Doesn't mean one gives up for the other. But it means that we get together and we say, we agreed, right, that this is the standard. Yes, this is the standard. We agree. That's harmony. And I would suggest then, since I've read this through 
40, 50 times, and you've read it through one time, I would suggest you consider it this way. And you seeing it for the first time differently, maybe you would suggest something. What would that be? And, and, and let us get together to get it right based on what the Word of God says. That's where we've got to get. And the world will see it doesn't matter whether it's an old saint or a new saint. They come together around the Word. And the Word's the standard. And they live harmonious. That's, I think, the first thing he's really trying to teach us to say. It's crazy if we don't do it that way. We're always in discord. We're always divided. Second, he says, be humble. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. You're pushing for yourself, your view. Conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Um, Do you regard others more important than yourself? I grew up in the age where Mac Davis wrote a song or sang a song. Probably you all remember it. It was number one forever. And in in the chorus, he says, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Right? And we could all resonate with that song because we all were thinking, Yeah, I'm right. And since I'm right, it's hard to be humble because that person's wrong. And we knew there was something wrong with self-depreciation. I don't, I shouldn't need to depreciate myself just to receive you. Lord, it's hard to consider you more important when actually I know I am more important because I got it right. And you got it wrong. That's what we struggle with. And yet the scripture says, no, 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 no. Something's messed up with that thinking. You need to consider others more important than yourselves. Spiritual fellowship enables us to do that. Let me just bring you into that world. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here's the chapter on spiritual gifts, okay, where they're laid out for us. Let me read the first seven verses, 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one says Jesus is Lord except the ho- in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts. So it's like you all have the Holy Spirit. You all are speaking that Christ is your Lord. That's, that's not a negative, and that's not inconsequential. That's significant. That means you all have received the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 7, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts. You've you got the same spirit, a variety of gifts. Verse 5, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. Verse 7 is crucial. Circle it. 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every single one of you were given a gift by the Holy Spirit if you're a believer, and that gift that you were given was given to you to bless everybody else. It's not there to bless you. You are not given the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit so you can just sit back and say, oh, this is cool. Man, I love this. I'm getting so much. No. It says you were given the Spirit and, and, and in a variety of ways so that you could bless the church. It was for the common blessing of the church. Now, skip over to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand... So he's using the analogy of the body. So I got a physical eye, I got a physical hand. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again, the head to the feet, don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts of the body, or excuse me, are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, given greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let's suppose you have an unbelievable intellect. You're smart. Just a few words come out of your mouth and people say, Whew, he or she is smart. Unbelievable. And God says, you can't say that that part of the body is more important than this part. If they don't have feet to walk around, the smarts never come out. We need the feet. We need the brain. We need both parts. Or we need the eye. So how can they see and comprehend without that? And he begins to say, God has designed the church in such a way that what the world might seem to think is the insignificant, unseemly, unnecessary parts of the body, we deem to be very significant and very important. That's how you humbly consider others more important than yourself. Got me? You may be really smart, and you may have two or three or four degrees. And you may be always studying. And you're brilliant. And the world needs you. And yet you can humbly say, no, 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 I need you. Because my feet never hit the pavement your feet hit. My hands never touch the people your hands touch. I need you. You're more important. I'm locked away in a room studying, writing, speaking, but I never get 
the face-to-face that you get. I need you. And we've got to learn to see how to humble ourselves and consider others more important. And the way we do that is by thinking of God's design, how he's designed the church so that those who have what we, the world seems to think are the smallest gifts are actually the more significant gifts. And when we see that, we love one another and we live together humbly, not exalting ourselves, but exalting others. And together we all come up as those have been purchased and designed by Christ. Well, third, helpful. Number Verse 4 says, Philippians 2, 4, Let each of you not look out to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I just put some quick things down here. I'm going to run out of time. How, how, how do you become a helpful person? An attentive eye. Somebody comes in the room, just be attentive. What do they need? What's going on here? Why are they here? What are their struggles? Just be attentive so that you can be helpful. Uh, Each of you not only look out to his own interests, so be attentive to the needs of others. Second, an open heart. Open your heart. What are they feeling? What are their hurts? What are their pains? What are their pleasures? Think of that. And then third, a willing hand. Once you've determined one and two, or A and B, through an attentive eye and an open heart, then just jump up and do it. Be willing. I, I, think, I think I know what you need. Let me, let me help. Jump in there and do something. Um, that's what it means to look out for the needs of others. Let me just stop and apply this a little bit more. I don't know that I've ever had uh, a case of marriage counseling where people don't come to me fighting about something. You know, you you come to my office, you sit down, we chit-chat a little while and love on each other, and then I say, okay, well, tell me what's going on, how can I help? And at some point, uh, you know, you're a little bit reluctant, but one person will say, well, he's always doing this. And the other one says, always? And I say, excuse me, okay, it's not always. Many times he's doing this. And the other one says, well, many times she's doing this. And I'm thinking, okay, we got to fight now. Many times and many times sounds pretty equal. Let's duke it out. Y'all need some boxing gloves? Let's work, let's work it out. Now, I'm not just talking about you, the, the one that came to me last week, whoever you are, right? I'm talking about all of you. I'm talking about me. Whenever we got in this situation, we want to fight. And... He's always doing this. 
she's always doing that. And we want to fight. Then we can change the words. Most of the time he's doing that. Most of the time she's doing that. And we still want to fight. And all we've done is soften the words a little bit. We still want to fight. Philippians 2. Are you believers? Well, sure. Has Christ encouraged you? Has he been there for you? And blessed you? Yeah. Has Christ ever comforted you when you were down, when you were hurting? Yeah. Have you experienced the Spirit just never leave you? No matter what you're doing, he's participating in your life. Yeah. And that's not enough for you to change? What does God have to do for you to say, I want to be like Jesus, and I want to love those that he's purchased with his blood? I want to be on the same page. I want to be harmonious. What is it going to take for you and me to quit fighting with one another? Because when that happens, Jesus says, and the world will believe that you're mine when you love one another. There could be revival in this land if we just get harmonious with people we say we already agree with. Right? Marriages could be different. Your workplace, are you in, on the same page with the people you work with? Your families, are you on the same page with your parents and your children, your brothers and your sisters? Life could be different, and the witness of Christ could be huge if we just loved the people we already say we're on the same page with. We live harmoniously with one another. And you say, but, but he's wrong, I'm right. Number two, what if you considered him more important than yourselves? Or her more important than you? Because that wrong, insignificant, low-life gift they have is actually more important than your brilliance. And sometimes we don't even put that into perspective. That God's not so much about our precision in theology as he is about our tolerance with the theological differences of others so that we can work it out and love one another. Be harmonious. Be humble. And when you see him or her come home, is your first thought, what can I do? Can I be helpful? 
Can I have an attentive eye to their needs? Can I have an open heart to their pain? Am I willing to get up though I'm tired and do something to express love? Christ says, do you not have incentive for that? That's reformation. We can look at the history of reformation, but that will change us. If we just begin to see when Christ says, I want you to walk worthy of the gospel, then he's talking about radically different lives that's completely different from the world in which we live. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, my heart breaks. I know there's, there's more here than, than I've expressed. I know there's more here than I do, and there's more here than we do. Have mercy upon us sinners. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Lord, we have forsaken you, but you have not forsaken us. Thank you. Let us come back to the God we love. Let us walk worthy. Let us be the light on this hill. Let us be the people of God. Let us be changed because you have changed us. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you this is not playtime. We aren't playing church. Our passion, our heart is to be seriously yours. And we ask that you would make us that for your glory and for your honor. For those in this room, Lord, that don't know you and are not sure what they got into this morning, change them. We ask that you would show them the light, the beauty, the glory of Christ and draw them to yourself. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.